Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Grab your copy of God's Word. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I don't know what's on your mind tonight. Nothing really going on in the world. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So glad to come together to listen. That's one of the beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that there's always hope, right? Uh, no matter if, uh, if your candidate won or your candidate lost, anywhere up and down the b- uh, ballot sheet, right? Anywhere up and down. Most likely you voted for somebody that didn't win, all right? Uh, up and down the val- uh, ballot box. And so, um, so either way... Uh, we know that um, God is good and God's on His throne. And so we rest in that goodness and mercy. And uh, we wait patiently for the outcome of all those, uh, all, all the election events and all that stuff. But um, the neat thing is, guys, and I really do mean this, this is important for us to grasp, is that um, Christ is thicker than politics. Amen? He really is. Christ is thicker than politics, and so um, that's that's part of the beauty of of Eastwood is that they're uh, I'm assuming uh, you know uh, different opinions on different things you know not everybody has the same opinion but in Christ we are one we can come together we can respect one another we can rejoice with one another we can weep when uh, each other weeps and all the things that go along with that and so that's the beauty of the body of Christ as we come together something bigger than ourselves something more lasting something more eternal as far as that goes. So Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to go tonight. Last time we were together, we began a series called Social Justice Goes to Church. And, um, you know, that, that, as I said last time, just a, again, to maybe just a quick catcher upper. Um, the, the, the term social justice, that is a, that's a, that's a huge umbrella term, huge umbrella term, all right? Um, but basically, it, it, we would define it as the pursuit of equal outcomes in society. Okay, equal outcomes in society. Um, through a social justice lens where there is an inequality of outcomes, an inequality of outcomes, particularly between identity groups, it is perceived as an injustice. All right, so pick whatever identity group you're talking about there, whether it be, um, whether it be quote-unquote race, whether it be quote-unquote gender, whether it be um, uh, socioeconomic status, whether it be age, whether it be whatever you, whatever you look at, whatever demographic tool that you want to put in there or demographic uh, category you want to plug in there, anywhere through this lens that there is inequality in any outcome, then by definition, by definition, it is perceived as an injustice. So social justice is the pursuit of equal outcomes in society. All right? And so, again, this idea, it goes across many topics of debate. Lots of topics of debate. Marriage justice. We, we heard that right back 2015 with Obergefell. Right? We've got to pass this because we want marriage equality. Even, I think we even had marriage equality acts and things like that. Okay? So you hear that word equality. That's the idea of social justice, that if one can marry, anybody can marry. It's sort of the idea there, okay? Um, it, it, it's applied to economic justice, again, um, between the rich and the poor, uh, between the haves and the have-nots, 
Um, it goes into criminal justice. Criminal justice, again, um, not just uh, who gets convicted, not just who gets charged, not just who gets arrested, uh, but how they get charged and for how long they get charged. It goes into environmental justice. Like this is a, uh, it, so it just spirals into all sorts of things. The idea of social justice is really an umbrella term. Now, let me just say up front, and I've, I've got to say this, and I've got to say this big. You, you've got to hear me on this. I'm not saying there aren't any problems in these areas. I'm not saying there's not wrongs in these areas, okay? I mean, if, if we know anything, is that people are sinners. We know that to be true. There's no doubt about that, all right? So as we continue to kind of critique the social justice movement as a movement, do not hear me say that, that Ben acts like there's no problems, because there are. The question is this, what are the prescribed solutions? That's what I'm getting at here, okay? What are the prescribed solutions? So that's what we want to examine in light of Scripture and try to understand what are the prescribed uh, solutions, the remedy. And does this remedy really accomplish what we want it to accomplish, okay? So again, social justice, very broad umbrella. Um, the focus is not on what's right, but what's equal in their outcomes, okay? So, um, so in, that, in that regard, think about this for a moment. It's always looking for differences, right? It, it's sort of like if you think about the, you know, my wife says sometimes I'm the, I'm the glass half empty guy, right? Um, <laughs> you think about your perspective, and maybe you're that person, but maybe you're the other way, more, maybe more like my wife is, who's the glass is half empty full, all right? But if you're a glass half empty person, then you're always looking for how it's less than, right? And so again, your perspective and the way you approach things is really important, okay? So as I said last time, social justice is just the street term, the street language, the street word for the academic philosophy called critical race, or not critical race theory, but just critical theory, just critical theory, so social justice is the street name. It's the popular name. Also called cultural Marxism. All right? Cultural Marxism. So classical Marxism, I'm a sociology major, and so, I mean, I, you know, Karl Marx, father of sociology, we say, okay? So classical Marxism divides the world into haves and have-nots. It's primarily looking at money and power. Money and power between the haves and the have-nots. Well, cultural Marxism divides the world not into haves and have-nots, but dominant culture and minority culture, all right? Or they could say it this way, dominant culture and oppressed culture. They would say by the very fact of being the dominant culture, by being the majority culture, you are oppressing the minority culture oftentimes through this lens, all right? Through this lens, um, it, it oppresses the minority culture through, through laws, through ethics. Again, this is big categories, right? We say, well, no, homosexuality is sin. They would say, you're oppressing me through your ethics, a person who, who, may, be, um, who may be prone to, to a homosexual lifestyle, right? They would say, you're oppressing me with your ethics. Um, so you get into things like, uh, you know, they come up with all these languages like heteronormative. 
Right? They come up with these, basically saying, uh, you're, you're basically being, um, uh, what's the word? You're basically being a, uh, a sexist in one sense, right? Because you have this heteronormative view on life, all right? So they come up with these words, and so they redefine things. So it really is a language game. Right? I mean, you think about all the times over the years, this PC culture where, where we, you, you can say this word, but you can't say that word. All right? And it keeps changing. You ever feel like, I can't figure it out? It keeps changing. All right? So this is across the board in a lot of different things. In a lot of different things. Um, and so it, 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 it's, it's just sort of where we are. But as I said last week, just a quick, uh, quick reminder of the core tenets of Critical theory. Critical theory, again, is the academic term for social justice. That's the street term, so to speak, okay? So uh, five, five tenets, just real quick, all right? First, the world is best understood as a struggle created by power structures and systems of power between the oppressed and the oppressor, all right? A.K.A., and when, you, when we get into critical race theory, we'd say things like systemic racism, all right? So it sees the world just by definition, all right, as these power structures that are vying for one another, okay? So that's the first thing. The world, the lens you're putting on there is seeing power structures and the struggle between those, all right? Secondly is this. This is a big part of, of critical theory is that our individual identity is inseparable from our group identity, all right? That's the idea. There are no individuals in this thinking, all right? It is a group dynamic, and what your group is in the greater culture, you are, okay? So there's no individuality in that regard as far as that goes from this thing. Um, third, we would say this. Oh, whoa, oh, oh. The computer was being slow. Oh, no! <laughs> Where is Allie when you need her? Where's Allie? All right. <laughs> Let me get back here. Oh, my goodness. I went, where did I go? <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, let me try this again. Get back. I done got way off. All right, third. Third, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups by dictating and maintaining society's norms, traditions, expectations, and, and ideologies. So again, there's that idea. That's cultural Marxism, right? Because the dominant group, the majority group, gets to define language and all those things, then they become oppressors even in that, all right? And so you hear things like, like, um, like, like words like microaggression and all these things. So even a word that you use can be seen as aggressive, even though like you're like, like I didn't mean that aggressive, but because the language that you're using there uh, can be part of the oppressor culture, all right? Third, subjective lived experience is more important than objective evidence and reason, and understanding oppression, all right? This, again, is what we call standpoint epistemology. In other words, how do you know what's, what's true? And basically, it's lived experience. Um, Vody Bauckham, who um, is a, man, he's a, I, I love that guy. He's a great preacher, theologian, apologist for the Christian faith. He calls it ethnic Gnosticism, all right? In other words, it's the, uh, it's the ability because of, of the color of your skin or because the the whatever it is that you are, that, that you know things that other people cannot know, all right? And so standpoint epistemology is, is really important. Now remember, as I said last week, critical theory is based on postmodernism, which says there's no absolute truth. You have a truth, and I have a truth, and she has a truth, and you have a truth, and they can all be true, 
And you can't tell me that my truth is false because my truth is my truth. You've heard that before. And then the fifth tenet of critical theory just in general is that our fundamental moral duty as human beings is to work for the liberation of oppressed groups. That's how they see our fundamental mission in this world. Remember, critical theory, what makes it critical theory? What makes a critical theory a critical theory is that not only does it see and, and say there's, there's injustice, but it comes along and says, here's where it needs to change, and it brings about the means of change, okay? Um, Take, for instance, uh, as we go into critical race theory tonight to talk about that in particular because that's what um, is sort of at the, the center of a lot of the discussion you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention and, and just uh, in general in the, in the popular culture. Think about the difference between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and then those that we're seeing now in the critical race theory camp. Vastly different approaches. Vastly different approaches. Um, you know, as far as it goes, um, you know, it, as you think about all the things that come along with that, so it's, it's not even, um, again, it, it's, it's redefining things, and it's much more militant, so to speak. It's much more, we're not going to wait for change. We're going to make it happen, right? And again, guys, don't hear me say there aren't problems. There are problems. Racism is real. Let's just get real as we get into this, right? Racism is real. Now, next week, I, I just want to go ahead and tease this. And next week, by the way, is our last Wednesday night of 2020 as far as coming together for children's ministry and student ministry and, and what we're doing here. So it's the last one of 2020. So next week is the last one. On the 18th, we go over to East Campus for our uh, One Church celebration and the business meeting uh, that night. And then the, uh, the only time we come back together as a church on a Wednesday night will be... Um, December 9 to set up for affordable Christmas, okay? So just but be watching for that. But let me say, next week, here's where we're going next week. What is the better way forward, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, there are problems. Absolutely there are problems, all right? But what is the, it's one thing to say, this isn't good, this, this way is not good. Well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, you, you, you remember the, the evangelist story where the woman came up to, I think it was Dwight Moody or something like that, D.L. Moody, and was like, like I, don't, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody said, well, okay, great, tell me how you do evangelism. And, he said, and, and then the lady said, well, I don't do evangelism. He said, well, I like mine better then, you know, as far as that goes. So we don't want to be that way, all right? We don't want to say, I don't like that or we shouldn't believe that. Okay, then what do you believe? What is a better way forward then? And next week, that's what we really want. Next week, we want to come back and, and give a positive biblical approach, a positive biblical worldview to how to bring these things together, how to see these things that we might really, I believe, follow God. Listen, God's heart, God's heart is that we would be one. Think about that. The whole earth, the whole earth, the gospel is a whole earth thing, isn't it? And we would all be together. And I know that y'all's heartbeat as well. So next week when we come back, we're going to dig into that. All right, so let's focus on the branch of critical theory called critical race theory, all right? It, it, in other words, it's critical theory focused on the dynamics of race. How does race apply into these situations, okay? So critical race theory is an 
ideology that divides the world into oppressed racial groups and their racial oppressors and aims to liberate the oppressed. All right? That's what critical race theory is. We could call this racial Marxism, all right, in terms of, of, of how it's approached, all right? Now, I gave you guys last week a copy of, of the resolution called Resolution 9 from the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention. And for those of you that don't know how this works, or, or you probably have never been to one, actually, I've never been to a Southern Baptist Convention myself as far as to the actual convention, um, but I've watched them online a lot of times, and uh, nevertheless, um, the, a, a resolution is basically um, a, a, a declaration of the people gathered at that convention. So they speak for that convention. They don't speak for every church in the Southern Baptist Convention. They speak for that church. And so there's lots of resolutions on different things, um, you know, as far as that goes. But this year, uh, or that year, there was one on critical race theory and, sec and intersectionality, all right? And so here are some things, uh, just to read down through this, and, and uh, I'll have a copy back here for you if you'd like a copy, all right? But here's, just let me read some of it here. We're not going to get all, all of it, all right? Whereas concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality, whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience, um, so on and so forth. On down, it says, under the authority of Scripture to use it, so on and so forth. Um, but then on the back, it says, be it resolved, um, critical race theory and intersectionality should be, only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture, not as transcendent ideological frameworks. And they say a lot of other things. Okay, so basically what they're saying here is that, that critical race theory and intersectionality are tools that we can use to help us better understand the world so that we can speak into it, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So they're saying these tools, critical race theory and intersectionality, are tools that, um, that we can use to get into that. And, of course, there was a big discussion, big debate on it as far as that goes. Okay, so here's what I want to do tonight, all right? The claim was you can use it for good purposes. And my question is, can you? Can you or is it? Um, sort of rotten at its core so that even the branches itself, you know, even the good things that we might see in it, we would be wise to avoid, okay? Because oftentimes, if the, if the root is poisonous, then the whole plant is poisonous, okay? And so, um, again, I, I don't mean this in, the der in a derogatory term at all, because some people use it in this way, uh, but critical race theory often um, is called wokeness, okay? Uh, I don't mean that to be a derogatory or anything like that, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not using it as a pejorative, okay? I'm just saying that's often what it's called. So how does wokeness compare to Christianity, okay? So we're going to see, um, what we're going to see is that it's, it's not technically a religion, but it's religious-like in a lot of its claims, all right? Leading a lot of folks to call wokeness the new religion rising in America, okay? So what I want to do tonight, I've got... Um, I, I, instead of having it on the screen, I've just got it on paper for you that you might take a copy with you and just think through these things. And man, again, listen, if, if, if you get in on this and you say, man, I think he's, I think he's missed the boat, um, I think he's way off on this, uh, I would love to have a, a further conversation with you because we're all learning in this regard. And so um, just to think these things through. Um, 
to kind of walk through these. Again, critical race theory is not a religion, okay? It's not a religion, but it's religious-like. Thanks, Shannon. All right, in a lot of ways. So, one for you, one for you, and one for them. All right, great. Thank you. So in terms of, in, in terms of just kind of walking through this and looking through this, all right, first, let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, because this is really important, okay? Here's what it says. It says, Colossians 2, chapter 8, says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right. So there are philosophies that are out there that are vying for our minds. It's vying for our hearts. It's vying for the way that we see things. And just like I, I, I've got contacts in right now, all right. I, I wish I had my glasses on, but you know, those of you who have glasses on right now, right? If you put your glasses on, you see the world differently, don't you? Okay. So the lens that you put on your eyes are very important, all right. And that's what a worldview is. Okay, a worldview is putting on, a, a basically putting on a pair of glasses so that you can see the world through it. And so it really does matter uh, which pair of glasses you put on. I just recently went back to the eye doctor and got a, an exam and all those things. And they checked me out and they told me what my prescription was. Well, I went and ordered my prescription and I put that one in my left eye and I'm like, I couldn't see a thing. Like my eyesight was awful. Well, it turned out that instead of my axis being 170, as it should have been, they put 70 on it, okay? And so it was the wrong prescription. But because I put a, 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 I put a different lens than, than what was good, I saw totally different. And so as soon as I put the right one in, totally seeing clearly and well. So it matters what worldview we put on, all right? So I want to walk through these things here uh, for just a moment, just kind of walking down through some of these things, okay? So... Um, First, again, just kind of a comparison walking down through here. Again, critical race theory is not a religion, but again, a lot of folks have recognized religious-like things, worldview claims in it. All right, so we're going to kind of walk down through it. So first, biblical Christianity, who is the supreme being? Well, it's, it's a triune God, our triune God. Um, in critical race theory, uh, it's, it's atheism. Uh, you know, again, these, this philosophy does not come out of, uh, out of the church. It doesn't come out of the Bible. It comes from the secular world. All right, that has developed these theories. Um, you guys know well, even as we've talked about the, uh, the, the, the connection last week to critical theory, to Marxism. Now, Karl Marx is famous for saying that religion is what? The opiate of the people, right? So he was a staunch atheist, a staunch atheist. And so, again, all these things in Connected here comes out of an atheistic worldview, um, that doesn't see God or honor the Bible in terms of those. Now, let me say this. There are many people who would take on some of these ideas and some of these thoughts who are Christian. They believe in God, all right? So I'm not saying that if a person takes on this lens that they're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. You just need to understand that, that it comes from a, a, an atheistic understanding of the world. That's where it came from, okay? Um, key figures, Jesus Christ, Paul, Peter, Augustine, Luther, Calvin. We could go on and on with key figures in history, all right? 
When it comes to critical race theory, these are some of the folks that we talked about last week. Karl Marx, the Frankfurt School. All right, so those are the folks you get Karl Marx with conflict theory. You get the Frankfurt School with what we call critical theory. And then we move in these other names here for like the writers of what we would call critical race theory. Derek Bell at Harvard, um, so on and so forth here with Kimberly. Um, uh, you see the other names there, Kimberly, um, Crenshaw, Richard uh, Delgado, uh, Gene Stefanik, or Stefanchik. Um, so those are some folks that are sort of big names in terms of, uh, of, of sort of formulating what this is. And also, of course, uh, there are key terms in both of those, right? Key terms, we kind of look down through these, all right? Key terms in Christianity, faith, sin, justification, atonement, repentance, lots of terms we could talk about. But in terms of critical race theory, we see a lot of terms that are, that are key there, like whiteness. Whiteness, um, again, is a term. We hear that and we're like, well, I mean, whiteness, I mean, that, that, what does that mean? Well, it basically means oppressor, all right? Whiteness is any system of oppression, okay, in, in this way of thinking, all right? Intersectionality, which we talked about some last week. White privilege, microaggression, systemic racism. These are all terms that are key terms um, in terms of, of understanding this, this viewpoint, okay? Uh, also, when we think about martyrs, all right, in the Christian faith, we have people who were killed for their faith in Jesus, all right? Now, when we come to critical race theory, uh, there, there are, in essence, martyrs as well. Now, again, as I say this, don't hear me say that, that, um, that these men and women uh, were... That, that their killing was good or that their killing was not an issue or anything like that, all right? But more importantly than that, I want you to think about how the race issue is used within it, all right? How it's juxtaposed, okay? So martyrs in the critical race theory viewpoint are black people killed by white people or police, all right? Again, it's sort of an agenda-driven sort of thing, all right? Black people killed by white people or police. When you think about Again, a lot of the folks, um, 2020 has been a, a, a tough year. 2020 has been in, as far as this goes. And we've seen several people, um, several people um, to be killed um, unjustly, it seems, and all the things that come along with that. So again, I'm not saying that, that there's, again, not an issue with their killing. What I'm saying is the way in which it was, the lens that was looked at was a white person killed a black person. See what I'm saying? All right, so that, that's the lens that it's looked through. Um, even when we think about, um, you know, I remember recently, um, you know, I forget his name. I think his name's Terry. He's an actor. He, he was in a conversation with Don Lemon, I think, on there, and they were talking about the Black Lives La uh, Matters movement, okay, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And Terry had gotten into some water because he basically had said all lives matter or something like that, and Don Lemon was kind of taking him to task on it. And Terry, I forget the guy's name right now, but Terry was basically saying that, you know, we see, we, we, why don't we talk about the, the black babies that are aborted? Why don't we talk about the, the black people who are killed this weekend? He was talking about maybe like Chicago or something like that, okay? So, so we see here that critical race theory, in an essence, kind of ignores those things. Again, it doesn't say that those things are good. But it ignores them because, again, the lens is looking at where do white people and black people intersect, and that's the one that's focused on. And those people are the one that kind of rise to the top 
as far as that goes, as far as those that they, that, that want to be uh, held as examples, all right? Um, how about the person of Christ? The person of Christ, as we think about these two here. Um, in Christianity, Jesus is the friend of sinners who lives, dies as a substitutionary atonement and rises again. Now, here's something really different, um, and maybe something you've heard, maybe you haven't heard this before, but from a critical race theory standpoint, Jesus is seen as the friend of the oppressed. Now, notice again that he's not the friend of sinners. He's the friend of the oppressed who lives and dies and is a, as an example of standing up for social justice and dying as a victim of injustice. So Jesus becomes that example for us. He's not necessarily the Savior in critical race theory. A lot of folks who would hold this position would see Jesus and they would use Jesus as, as examples. Let me just give you a, a, a couple of quotes tonight. James Cone. James Cone is uh, probably, um, probably one of the most famous uh, what's called black liberation theologians, okay? He's now deceased. And, um, and again, if you were to hear him speak, I mean, he, uh, he, he moves your heart. I mean, he's, he's powerful in his speaking. Uh, but he wrote a book uh, called, he, he wrote several, but one is called God of the Oppressed. Listen to what he says. He says, any analysis of the gospel which does not begin and end with God's liberation of the oppressed was ipso facto unchristian. That's theologian speak. What he's saying is, if your idea of the gospel doesn't equal the liberation of the oppressed, you're not following Christianity. All right, it's kind of what he's saying there. So the mission, again, the mission is to free the oppressed. And we can, again, put in a lot of different ways of who's, who's oppressed, okay? Um, James Cone said this later. He said, Christians join the cause of the oppressed in the fight for justice not because of some philosophical principle of the good or because of religious feeling of sympathy for people in prison. Sympathy does not change the structures of injustice. The authentic identity of Christians with the poor is found in the claim which the Jesus encounter lays upon their own lifestyle, a claim that connects the word Christian with the liberation of the poor. Christians fight not for humanity in general, but for themselves and out of love for concrete human being. So again, Christianity is seen as the liberation of the poor, the liberation of the oppressed. So that's how they see Jesus, as the liberator of the oppressed. Sin equals oppression in their worldview, okay? Sin equals oppression in their worldview. How about sources of authority? We kind of talked about this already, all right, but when you compare the two here, Sources of authority. The Bible, of course, for historic Christianity, biblical Christianity, God's revealed word to us. What are the sources of authority for critical race theory? Well, we talked about this moment. Standpoint epistemology, which basically says, my perspective is what constitutes truth, right? My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. Postmodernism, Marxism, critical theory. So again, experience rises to the top, all right? Not revelation from God, right? But experience. How about the doctrine of humanity? The doctrine of humanity. How do they rack up? So human beings, according to Orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity, human beings are created in God's image. Every person is a unique, precious being of dignity and worth. Right? That's what the Bible teaches, right? 
how does a critical race theorist see human beings? They see it as this. Human beings are made up of intersections of identity that lead them to experience different levels of privilege and oppression. All right? So that's how a critical race theorist... This idea of intersectionality is the idea that you and I have a lot of different identities. All right? I am... Uh, you know, I am, uh, I, I, am, I am white, I am male, I am Christian, I'm in this socioeconomic status, I'm, uh, I'm young, amen, I, <laughs> I'm, you know, I can just go on and on, right, I'm, I'm cisgendered, which means that uh, the, my biological sex matches my my, the, the sex I have in my mind as far as uh, my gender. Uh, I, am, I am male biologically and in my mind. All right, all these different terms. All right? So all these intersections. And basically those, where those intersect, then people are seen to be able to experience greater and lesser privilege and oppression. Um, and we won't get into all of that. There's a lot more we could say on that. But the idea of intersectionality... Um, is, is really the, the engine that drives a lot of this, okay? Um, intersectionality is basically um, is a measure of how oppressed you are, all right? So the more, the more identities that you have that are minority in whatever it is, the more oppressed you are. And so it's like, um, it, it, it's sort of like um, a competition of, you know, of, of who has the most oppression. And whoever has the most oppression is supposed to have the microphone. And everybody else is to shut up and listen. Because again, you've not experienced the level of oppression that that person has experienced. All right? And so by default, they get the microphone and they get to set the new way forward. They get to tell us how to move forward. All right? Um, here's what Kimberly Williams Crenshaw said about it. Again, she's the one that, that founded that, who, who coined that term and the idea. Here's what she wrote. She said, intersectionality is simply a prism to see the interactive effects of, ver of various forms of discrimination and disempowerment. It looks at the way that racism, many times, interacts with patriarchy, heterosexism, classism, xenophobia, seeing that the overlapping vulnerabilities created by these systems actually create specific kinds of challenges. Now, in one sense, right, I mean, this is, this is common sense in one sense, right? Again, given the situation that we're in, and, I mean, there are, again, there are oppressed groups. There are people who have challenges that other, don't, other people don't have, all right? But again, what's the, what's the, the cure that it then asks us to think through, okay? That's the doctrine of humanity. How about human identity, this one's really important, guys, and this is the one that I preached on a lot. Um, we'll talk more about it next week. But human identity, for the Christian, your identity is in Christ, bringing people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation together into one family. Your identity is in Christ, bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation together into one family. But how does critical race theory see this? Here's how a, 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 a CRT adherent would see this. Your identity is your perceived racial group. Your perceived racial group. And again, when I say your perceived racial group, um, 
you know, it, it really is uh, how do you see yourself in a lot of ways, okay? Um, you know, I mean, I could go into two examples of that, but in terms of it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the color of your skin, but it's the sort of the, the culture you adhere to in a lot of ways, so on and so forth, okay? So, so um, but here, here's, here, here's, the, here's a really important part of this. Separation of groups or safe spaces is the key to maintaining your identity and basically having uh, peace. So again, just think about, like I said earlier, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision for what America would be seems very different from this. It's almost the overturning of the ideas that he was aiming for, right? That, that, that um, again, I wish I had, I had the dream speech here, but he basically said that my kids would play with other people's kids and so on and so forth. Black girls would play with black boys and, and white girls and, and white boys would play with, together. They would all be together. You know, but again, you're even seeing this like this year in particular in college campuses where now we're looking at segregated dorms. You're looking at um, you know, segregated spaces. This is a white space. This is a people of color space. You see what I'm saying? And so this, this, is the, this is the remedy that CRT says because the very, the, the very presence, they would argue, of a white person oppresses people of color. The very fact that you're there oppresses them. Okay? So let's move forward a little bit here. How about then the basic human problem? So what is it? We would say the basic human problem is sin. It's the transgression of, transgression of God's law. Well, for CRT, it would be the oppression of others, particularly by white people, a.k.a. white supremacy. Okay? And who's the enemy? Well, for Christianity, the enemy is Satan. For CRT, for wokeness, the enemy is whiteness and structures of oppression. All right? Whiteness and structures of oppression. How about the original sin? The original sin. Original sin, as we would say, is transgressing God's law, being born of Adam, who was our first father, when he sinned against God and brought sin into the world, passing that guilt and that sin nature onto his offspring. So that's original sin, transgressing God's law. Adam, our father, Sinned against God and brought sin into the world, passing on that guilt and that sin nature to his offspring. A CRT, critical race theory, a woke ideology, would say this. The original sin is racism. All right? Being born white, having ancestors who brought black slaves to America, white guilt due to ancestral sins, and participating in societal structures that privilege white people. And then they'd also throw this in there, is that black people can't be racist. They would say that. All right. Let me just read an article to you. This article kind of blew my mind. Um, this is by an uh, author. Um, she's the top writer on Medium. Uh, I don't really know what Medium is, but apparently it's a website with a lot of articles on it. <laughs> she's an author, a writer, an advocate, a realist. Um, she, um, you know, the top writer on Medium in Black Lives Matter, Racism, Parenting, and Politics. The title of her article is this. Yes, my dear, all white people 
are racists. Here's what the article says. It says, first, learn what racism is and what it's not. I need white people to understand that all white people are racist. Admit it. And let's just move on to the business of repairing and healing the country. We can't do it without you. Yes, my dears, all white people are racist. All of them. Here is where you stop to cry. Clutch your pearls, rant and rave aloud to tell me how wrong I am. To tell me, not all white people. I'm doing reverse racism. There's no such thing as reverse racism. And you're already ready to do tit for tat with me and every black person on the internet because you're too afraid to say this nonsense in person on how terrible black people are. I have fill-in-the-blank white person savior activity here, so I know I'm not racist. I don't say the N-word. I go to church with black people. I even go to lunch with black lady or guy from my job. I have a biracial child. I date black women or men. My husband or wife is black. I work in all black fill-in-the-blank setting. I'm not a racist. I'm liberal. I voted for Hillary. I use Black Lives Matter hashtags. I have a black friend that I never talked to about race. I know. I've already heard it all, honey. I know. You are a product of your racist American environment. You're racist, love, but it's okay to admit it. I'm ready for you to admit it so we can move on to bigger things. You denying the obvious stalls, the long road to healing. Take a moment to sit with this new old revelation. Your racism is a product of nurturing and nature. Own it. You can't help you, uh, you can't help, you were born to racist parents who were raised in a white supremacist system. That's, that's, you might say that's really far-fetched. But guys, really, what she did right there is that she really captured in a really creative way, let's just be honest, a really creative way, the ideology of critical race theory. Okay, All white people simply by being born white here in America. And, and, and it's probably focused in America, all right? But by, by being born white, you are racist. Um, the 2014 movie, Dear White People, the black lead character, here's what he argues. He says, black people can't be racist. Prejudice, yes, but not racist. Racism describes a system of disadvantages based on race. Black people can't be racist since we don't stand to benefit from such a system. So see the redefinition there of racism, right? Racism is now understood as systemic racism. And if you don't have power, they say, you can't be racist. Well, we'll see next week what the Word of God has to say about that and a way forward in how we think, all right? So again, when you see there the, the original sin, like, Guys, that, that to me is one that, that really, like, major red flag. I know there's been red flags, but that's a major red flag here. How about the solution to the basic human problem? Well, we would say salvation. Release from the guilt and power of sin. God's gift of grace through Christ's atonement. Received through personal faith in Christ. And here's what the CRT person would say, what the woke ideology would say. Become woke. How, well, how do you get over this problem? Become woke. Participate in anti-racism initiatives. Tear down the white supremacist structures of oppression, including statues, symbols, language, 
all those things. So that's the solution, is become woke, participate in anti-racism initiatives, and tear down all of those things, okay? How about atonement? How do you overcome this sin? What has to happen? Well, we would say the sacrifice of Christ. Christ covers our sin. But, a, but the atonement from a CRT um, proponent would say, first, admit that you are a white supremacist. Right? There's this confession aspect of it. Just admit it. You are. Just go ahead and admit it. And then there's the, the acts of penance, so to speak, of anti-racism. You've got to do the acts of anti-racism. Do the acts of anti-racism. Now, I, I mentioned this last week, but I wanted to share the whole post with you. I was telling you about um, a young lady. She's, well, she's grown up now, but she was in middle school when I first met her. Uh, I was her youth pastor, and she's now a, a pastor in Florida. And she posted this recently. Uh, she said, beautiful words from Bishop Sue. We are a broken and fallen world and all are imperfect people trying to do better. But the first step is admitting that we, all fall sh- that we all fall short. We all have internal biases and unconscious feelings we need to admit and do better. Here's what the bishop wrote. She wrote, I confess, think about here, atonement, right? This idea of admitting that you are a white supremacist. Here's what she wrote. She said, I confess my internalized racial superiority and I will spend the rest of my life repenting of these sins. So hear that? I'm going to spend the rest of my life repenting of these sins. This is what we see sort of across the, the, the culture um, as far as uh, people coming out and uh, you know, saying on film, I am a white supremacist you know, and things like that. And you're like, dude, I didn't think, I didn't know you... I am, you know, it's because I'm born white or whatever, okay? How about redemption? Redemption. How are we redeemed? Well, according to Christianity, you're redeemed by repenting and trusting in the work of Christ. For critical race theory, guys, here's the really key part. There is no grace in critical race theory. There is no redemption, period. There is no redemption, period. Notice, remember what the bishop said. She said, I will spend the rest of my life repenting of my sins. You can't apologize enough. You, if you po- apologize last week, you've got to apologize again this week, right? It, it's never gone. It's never moved past. It's always at the forefront. It's always brought back up, and it's always held over a person's head forever. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, and it may still happen today, but remember back like, like in the old, like the Middle Ages or whatever, remember that idea of that self-flagellation where people would walk around, like the monks would walk around and beat themselves with basically a whip, and their backs would be bloody and all those things. Right? This is sort of that idea here of self-flagellation where you, for the rest of your life, kind of have to beat down yourself and repent of those sins Ashley Shackelford, um, you know, in the YouTube age, things go viral easily, don't they? Well, I don't know if she meant to or not, but in 2017, she went viral. Um, Ashley Sh- uh, Shackelford was doing a training. Um, she was doing a training, um, and it, it, her, her session went viral. She was opposing racism, and here's what she said. Here, here was her quote. 
She said, all white people are racist. Well, we've already heard that tonight. But she went further. She said, no, you're always going to be racist. Even when you're on a path to be a better human being. All right, so in other words, there's no redemption in a CRT worldview. You cannot overcome it. Think about where it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul says, he lists this big old list, and then he says, such were some of you. It's in the past tense. There is no past tense to a critical race theory worldview. You will forever be that racist. She went further, though. She said, I believe all white people are born into not being human. White people grow up to be demons. Again, that's, that's extreme. She said way more than other people would say. But the core of kind of what she was teaching that day is not unusual, kind of in what we would call the critical race theory circles or the woke circles. Three more categories here to think through. How about the non-adherents? In other words, the, the, the non-Christians, the non-critical race theorists. What do we call them? Well, for us, we would call them the lost, the reprobate, the condemned, the... And we could go on and on with lots of phrases from Scripture as far as what we would call them. But if you're a non-adherent of CRT, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a white supremacist, and you are experiencing white fragility. Now, white fragility is basically um, Robin DiAngelo, really famous right now with her book as far as this goes, called White Fragility. White fragility is basically, um, it basically says this, is that, is that you white people are so soft, you're so fragile, that you can't handle discussions about racism, your racism. And so you've got to come to terms with that. You've got to get over your white fragility and just accept the fact that you are indeed a white supremacist. Just admit it. And then we can move on. That's sort of the, the, the gist of, of, of white fragility. So I guess even tonight here, um, you know, she would probably put the label on me that, that Ben is, being, uh, is showing his white fragility tonight. All right. So how about punishment? Well, what we see in Christianity, the punishment is, is hell. That's what we see in, in Scripture. For those that don't turn and trust in Jesus, they pay for their sins. And they pay for their sins in hell. How about for those that, 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 uh, that don't go along with critical race theory? We see this all the time, right? They are canceled. They are deplatformed. They are replaced uh, all the time. E- even if, even if like, like you, 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 just, you just accidentally said something, like right, right, people talk all the time, you know, and, and you, you didn't mean to say that, but, but you said it. Well, there's no redemption. You said it. It's, it's, it's undoable. People lose their jobs. Um, you know, all sorts of things as far as that goes. And so you get canceled, deplatformed, and replaced. Then finally, what's the ultimate hope? Well, our ultimate hope is eternal fellowship with God in the new heaven and on earth. And of course, we would add even more than that, that there would be unity on earth, that there would be peace, that there would be oneness on earth. And what is the ultimate hope of the critical race theorist? Or we would say the critical theorist in general, and that would be diversity, inclusion, and equity on earth. Again, you hear that idea of equity again. So, as you look down through here, 
Um, and if you think, you know, again, Ben, you weren't fair in this area or whatever else, I, I, would, I would love to talk with you about it to help me understand better what I'm missing. Um, but in terms of, of, of all of this thing, I, I just ask this question, can this be squared with Christianity? And, and I think it can't. It can't. It is a worldview that is in opposition to Christianity. Um, J. Uh, Gresham Machen, famous theologian, who in the early 20th century was sort of the, the main writer against what we, what we call liberalism, right? The rise of basically a, a, a Christless Christianity. Um, and here's what he said. He, he basically said this. This is a, not, not an exact quote, but he, he basically said, liberalism is Christianity, is, um, is masquerading as Christianity, but it's actually a different religion, all right? It's not Christianity at all. And I would just want you to think here, as a Christian, do these things coincide? Can you take those two things and hold them together, right? I was saying this today to, uh, to, to our staff here at South Campus. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And so the ideas that you hold will absolutely take you somewhere but will they take you forward? Is it a better way forward? If the root is rotten, I would say so are the branches and the fruit thereof. And so next week, next week, um, we're going to come back together. And I'm going to lay out, again, to the best of my ability, if we'll not be perfect, and you would probably critique it and say, well, you missed this or you missed that, but I'm going to do my, my best way possible to figure out a better way forward, a biblical way forward, right? And the beautiful thing is at South Campus here is that we do have people of quote-unquote different races, different ethnicities, you know? I, and I love that. I mean, that's one of the joys as a pastor of looking out and seeing folks who have African descent or Asian descent or um, Middle Eastern descent. Um, or whatever other descent, European descent, or you know, as far as that goes. So I love seeing that, and that's really God's view of heaven. And so there's, there's got to be a better way forward. We've got to put on our Bible goggles to see these things. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.